because the reality is once you get data into a table, you can do really cool things with it. Yeah, mm -hmm. as simple as sort it. You know, I just want to sort by price. Until you get it into a table, that's not possible. And this is why we talk about tabular data being really the kind of cornerstone of decision-making um, in businesses. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Hey everyone, just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month, and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text QUICK TIPS to 33444. That's the word QUICK, Q-U-I-C-K, and TIPS, T-I-P-S is in sugar, to 33444, and you get instant access. All right, everyone. Today's episode is with David White, who is the CEO of Import.io, which is a web data platform and web scraping tool that lets you transform any website into a table of data or an API in minutes without even writing any code. I've used the tool a few times for some of my projects, and it's been super helpful. Um, David, how are you doing today? Eric, I'm great, and thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, thanks for being here. So I guess you know we could kick things off by uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself and the company. Yeah, so I mean, let's start with the company. Um, we we're pretty obsessed about this mission, which is there is a huge amount of data on the web, and every day more and more data is published to web, but the web was never designed for it. And as such, you know, if you want to get it get data off the web, you want to put it into some kind of you know. Uh, place where you can make decisions from, typically a database, it's tough. And you end up doing things like writing scrapers. And having written my fair few scrapers in my time, we felt this was a horribly inefficient way to use this incredibly valuable resource. So, you know, we're really obsessed with just trying to take that, you know, that, that enormous amount of data on the web and make it really easy for people to make decisions from it. So, that's what we're all about, and, and that's the thing that sort of gets us up every day and gets us excited. Um, the business has been going for about three years now. Um, it's been an interesting ride. Um, we've got about probably about 600,000 uh, customers on the platform at the moment, um, pulling about uh, just over a billion data points a day. So we're starting to get close to uh, getting people you know, using the power of the web. So that's been tremendously exciting. My background is um, I was head of technology innovation for a, a, an international bank called the Royal Bank of Scotland, and briefly the largest bank in the world before it all went terribly wrong in 2008, 2007, 2008. Um, and, you know, I really come from a practitioner. I mean, we were really struggling with making good data-driven decisions. And as part of that journey, I really got excited about the possibilities of of using the web as a source of data to make better decisions. So that's kind of where I came from with that. Got it. Okay. So what are, I mean, what would be some example, you know, I use the tool a lot, but you know, what are some, you know, example use cases for somebody using import.io, let's say a startup or like a marketer, how would they use import.io? 
Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, you can sort of look at some of the, I'll give you some of the kind of highest profile ones. I mean, I think the one that's, that probably springs to mind most often, and, and when I talk to a typical user, what they're quite often using it for is price-based decisions. So really being able to say, okay, in a market where you're highly dynamic on your pricing, how do you know, to, you know, how, do you know how to price? How do you know the decision points that drive you to a market competitive price. And obviously that means gathering lots of prices from the web, from competitors, from adjacent businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So that's quite a common use case. And you know, our business model is we sell data as a service. The free tool is actually all about crowdsourcing our semantic understanding of the web. And then that drives algorithms that mine the web for specific data points. Um, and our subscription service, you know, probably about half the customers are pulling price data. So that's quite a common one. Another one that's, that's um, more common on the free platform is lead generation. So really, you know, how do you, and my, one of my co-founders, Andrew Fogg, um, does a great, uh, has a great 20-minute presentation you can find on YouTube called 10,000 Leads in, in, I think it's 10 minutes. Uh, and that's all about how do you create big lead generation databases to allow you to kick off a, a marketing stream, et cetera. So there are two quite common use cases we see a lot. Um, we also have, I mean, one of the amazing things about having a platform out there on the web um, that can do many different things is you get lots of, you know, sort of weird and wonderful use cases as well. So I think there's an art installation in Barcelona that's powered by data coming from our platform. So maybe not such a typical use case, but just to illustrate some of the wider things you can do with the platform. Wow, that's that's cool. Um, I, I know for me personally, you know, working on, on on some projects. I mean, we for us, you know, we're trying to build a directory of uh, you know facilities across the nation. And you know, what we did was we just you know went to directories that are out there. We just literally scraped all their uh, scraped all their data, just imported into import.io. Didn't need a didn't need to hire a developer or anything like that, just to get things kicked off. So I think you know for those scrappy people out there, the free tool is definitely worth a look, and also the paid tool as well. So um, thanks for that. No problem. Yeah. Um, so th the next question for you, I mean, you just, you talked a little, a little bit about the, the semantic web. What does that mean exactly? Well, I, I mean, obviously, the, the, the kind of definitions really date back to the works of Tim Berners-Lee was doing in the early 2000s. And, you know, I think that was an acknowledgement of, you know, so Tim Berners-Lee having invented the web uh, standard, that there was a disparity between the original intention of HTML, which was obviously a display language, and the reality of the type of information that was now being served on the web, which was a mixture, content and data was being mixed together using the same output. So the semantic web standards were really about trying to separate those, trying to make it easier for a machine, whether it be a browser, a crawler, or, or a scraper, et cetera, to be able to identify data on a page and hence extract it. The problem was, and any, uh, any practitioners out there who've sort of been through the semantic web, is it's not widely adopted. Hence, many websites are not actually marked up with clear, you know, uh, using the semantic standards, clear markup of, of, you know, this is a place, this is a person, this is a, you know, price, etc. So we love the concept of the semantic web, but we saw that it was unlikely to be adopted because, quite frankly, the people that wanted the data weren't the people publishing the data, and hence there was a, a mismatch between the sort of supply and demand or the incentives around it. So what our interpretation of it is literally being able to take a website and clearly identify 
to a scheme of what the data elements are. And to, to give you a sort of practical example, because I'm throwing a bit of jargon in there, if I go to a, a shopping website, I want to be able to see what's the product description, what's the product name, what's the product size, what's the product price, what's the product dimensions, and do that in a way that on every single page of that site and many other sites that hold similar content, I can have a clear identification of each of those elements and then express them in a tabular format. Because the reality is once you get data into a table, you can do really cool things with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. As simple as sort it. You know, I just want to sort by price. Until you get it into a table, that's not possible. And this is why we talk about tabular data being really the kind of cornerstone of decision-making um, in businesses. You, know, you have to start with something that's sortable, that's indexable, that can be used in a way that you can make decisions from. So that's how we view the semantic web. It's maybe slightly different from the, the traditional description, which is more about a standard. But it's the same output, which is a web, you know, a web that you can actually sort and filter and do all those things that you know, make data more usable. Got it. Okay. So does, correct me if I'm wrong here. So does the free tool, I mean, you know, people using the free tool help you collect, you know, all this additional data that, you know, basically, you know, people are helping you across the world and you know, collect that for free? Yeah. And essentially, I mean, to sort of go a bit deeper in that, when you use our free tool, um, you typically, I mean, we have a couple of free tools, but let's use a typical example. You would go onto a page and you'd actually click on an element on the page and say, I want this piece of data and I'm going to describe it as a product name. Now, what we do is we take all of those descriptions of product names and we try and convert the semantic description product name to how it is typically expressed in HTML. So if you think about it, this is translation of languages. It's translating English, in the case I've just given, to actually HTML. And obviously, the the problem we have is there are many different ways to mark up that particular piece of data. And if we see enough examples, and we've seen millions and millions of examples, we actually get really good at an algorithmic level. We use various Mm. machine and deep learning techniques of going on a page and going, probabilistically, that element is actually describing a product name based on what we see around it, based on what we see on the page, etc. So that's what the free tool is about for us. I mean, it gives us a great um, training set. It's also our primary lead gen, obviously, for the paid tool uh, or for the paid data sets because, you know, you, you describe yourself. Typically, people want to come on and, and do some quick prototyping with data. But if you have a long-term production requirement, then we will sort of reach out to you and say, okay, these are the benefits of taking the data as a service rather than continuing to build it yourself through the free tool or writing scrapers, et cetera. Got it. Okay. That makes complete sense. And I think it's a, it's an ecosystem that, well, I guess everything kind of feeds back into what you guys are trying to do overall. Right. So that's, that's cool. I think it's genius. Never knew that. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about user acquisition a little bit. I mean, how did you guys go about acquiring, let's just say your first 10,000 customers? Yeah. So I mean, it was an interesting one. I, I, I won't express any master plan here, but I can tell you actually what happened and how it played out. Um, we, we actually exited a, a previous company that was in a similar space to start Import.io. Um, and so we, we kind of had an idea of what the customers were. So we weren't going into this without uh, having done a reasonable amount of customer discovery up front. And we've really much honed down to the fact there were probably three primary personas, um, the two of which we were really focused on were 
data analysts and data scientists. And we decided that the best way to get some immediate attention from them was to go to one of these startup competitions. And it was actually run by Strata, who do a, a, a competition or do a conference um, that basically is for, for big data guys, data scientists, etc. And we entered the startup competition and won it, which was great. Um, and that really gave us the first sort of market presence, which got a little bit of traction around the private beta. So our private beta, I think, was a couple of thousand uh, customers. And we really then just focused on those guys for about six months. We, we kind of kept it to a true private beta and just kept throwing more product, iterating, learning what we did wrong, etc. But that, I mean, I've, I've recommended this to a number of people. That process of going through a startup competition was really good for us. It helped us to really define our pitch a little bit more and, and sort of articulate the features and benefits. Um, but also the, the press uplift from, uh, from winning it, et cetera, was fantastic. We got a lot of attention and, and basically filled that private beta up almost instantly. Uh, and then that gave us the, the first bunch of customers. From there, that sort of next stage was very much then using um, sort of more of the, the viral aspects and the word of mouth around really hammering home to these guys that, you know, don't write scrapers. They're a waste of time. We can give you a better solution to that. And, and that works really well using this initial 2,000 um, customers in our private beta. Got it. Okay. So, okay, initial 2,000 in the private beta, I guess – Looking on the outside, was there like a were you guys trying to build scarcity? Was there like a like a waiting list that people can kind of enter? Yeah, and we were trying to. I mean, we did a fair amount of. I mean, part of the reason for closing that was purely technical. We really needed to understand more of the, um, you know, the implications of doing this thing at scale, etc. Mm. Um, but also, we were trying to really start to, you know, question those guys about motivation, features, typical use cases to really give us the ability to start pushing out content, giving examples, um, talking to the press a bit more. In fact, I mean, if you look at the history of import, we, we then subsequently entered about four other um, startup competitions, include one of the largest, which was the De Dublin Web Summit. And we were very fortunate to win all of those and, and ended up, I mean, Dublin Web Summit alone, I think, I think we acquired about 5,000 users I think we acquired about 5,000 users out the back of within wow. 24 hours of winning the Dublin Web Summit. So those competitions are great because you just get so much press coverage and some real intensity around them. Um, the only thing I caveat is you've really got to be ready for it. Um, we, we kind of um, we had to adapt fast when we, you know, things like the Dublin Web Summit, I think uh, the site was teetering um, at, at that point, and we were, we were pretty much on the edge from a uh, from a scaling point of view, but we got through it. I don't think we we had too much downtime through that period. Okay, so I think that's really interesting. I mean, acquiring you know customers by winning startup competition. So, can you? I guess the first part of the question is, you know, what exactly happens in one of these startup competitions? And the second part is, how do you go about winning? What are your tips there? <laughs> so, I mean, typically there, there, uh, there's a, you know, a panel of, you know, VCs and industry experts and you pitch and you go through various rounds and then hopefully you come out of the final. Um, we really liked them because it gave us an opportunity to really hone 
the pitch and the product around a very specific, easy to understand, easy to identify problem that had a clear target market. And it meant that very early on, with quite limited resources, I mean, you know, we were kind of, we started with six people, but, you know, pretty much zero marketing experience. We were learning a lot of this stuff um, on the fly. It really got us disciplined about how we explained and how we approached the market and, and even the features that were going into the product. So we found that good. And also we targeted most of the startup competitions around um, big data. So conferences that were about big data that were running startup competitions or conferences that were very startup focused that we could really then identify a lot of people that were probably going through the pain and had a requirement for the product. So that worked really well. I mean, tips on winning them. I, I think, you know, it's a bit like winning a, it, it's a bit like pitching to a VC. You've got to really get, grab their attention early on. You've got to really explain why this is a pain point that many people have. And you've got to be clear on what the USPs are. And, you know, we did a few that, um, you know, inevitably you go through that process, you hone your pitching, et cetera. And it did actually help us with fundraising as well because, you know, quite often there were VCs on the panel in the audience. So, you know, we got one of our major VCs because they were sitting in the audience when we did one of these pitches and they liked what they heard and they reached out to us. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think on winning it, really focused. You've got to really understand the problem space in the market um, and how, you know, what your product does to really move the needle. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. Super interesting. The first time I've heard, um, you know, so much success by winning startup competitions. Awesome, man. Um, okay. So you, you, you talked to, you talked to me a little bit about, uh, you know, running your, your conference. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the conference and what it's done for you guys? Yeah, that's something we did uh, pretty early on, actually. I mean, I think we ran our first conference. Our conference is called um, Extract. And we ran the first one probably only about sort of 18 months in. So pretty early on for a company um, to be running a conference. And the reason why we did that, the, the original driver around it was very much about we wanted to build the community. We, we are passionate about the problem. Um, we found lots of users that were equally passionate about the problem. And we wanted to bring people together to talk about not just our product, but the more general, um, let's say, issue, opportunity around data on the web and how to maximize it and cool things that people were doing with data. So that was the original driver for it. In doing the first one, we realized it was actually also a great lead generation process um, because we were bringing together people that had the problem, were interested in solving it, and were doing interesting things with data which is obviously a great target market for us. So we've now run it four times. Um, the first one was about 200, no, not even that, about 150 people here in London. Um, but we were fortunate to get some great speakers. Um, and the one we've just run uh, was in San Francisco, had 600 people. Um, it was a paid event. I mean, tickets started at $100. Um, so it kind of more than paid for itself, which was great. Uh, we had some amazing speakers, people like Andrew Ng, the, the, the chief research scientist that they do, and uh, a number of other people um, at the event. Uh, so great, you know, great content, some really interesting stuff. Um, 
you know, we had Chris Lambert, the CTO at Lyft, who had some really interesting stories around that. Uh, Chris also turned up with a zombie, which is not what we were expecting, so it's Halloween, so <laughs> added some interesting stuff. Um, and yeah, the events turned into a major part of our marketing drive and a major part of our drive into the community as well. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of very focused on bringing lots of data practitioners together to talk about all of the cool stuff that they're doing with data and how they're using data to make better decisions. Um, so yeah, we, we, you know, we're a big fan of running this type of conference. And I think if you, if you really have a genuine community element to your product, it does make a lot of sense to try and bring people together from the ecosystem to talk about, you know, how to expand the opportunities, how to, you know, share best practice, et cetera. Um, so yeah, we're, we're big fans of it. And as a, as an event, it's become a great event and one that, you know, I, I love it. It's twice a year we get to, to bring all of our cool users and lots of, you know, people that are not using us yet and talk about all the cool stuff you can do with data. Awesome. So, I mean, you know, you've done a few of these events already. I mean, what, what are some mistakes to avoid when doing these events? <laughs> uh, there's quite a few. I mean, it's really about content. I think, I mean, this holds true of, you know, anything where you're engaging the community. The content has got to be genuinely good and interesting. So from day one, we made a policy of not making the content all about import. We made the content about data stories. You know, something that we're obviously often a key part of, but not something that, you know, is exclusively us. So we really aim to, to make the content great and that's something that i think it's an easy mistake to uh, maybe you know get 70 percent of the content right and accept the fact that that's the way it goes and we're you know we literally have a team of people um a couple of people who work on this all year with that kind of commitment you can actually get some great speakers you can really start to build themes into the conference that sort of play all the way through um, and you know, as such, when people come to it, they, they believe, you know, they, they enjoy the event and that really, really helps you to sell the next event. And that's one of the things that we kind of learned that, you know, we really have to major on the content and you have to major on the follow-up of the content as well. So one of the things we now do is do a series of blog posts around each individual's talk to help us to continue to push that message out. And that's one of the mistakes we made early on of not really doing the good follow-up after the conference to make sure the impact of it is not just the day, but the months afterwards as you, you, know, as you start to replay some of that content out into the market. Um, so yeah, my number one thing and, and something that I think we're always getting better at is really focus 100% on the content. Um, the other thing I would say, because we, we, we've done it pretty much every time, is don't underestimate the logistics. You know, moving 600 people around the building, feeding them, keeping them watered, et cetera, um, is actually surprisingly difficult. Um, and we've learned from getting it wrong how important it is to get that right. Mm. Um, so that, that was very much a, a sort of um, on-the-job learning for us. So did you hire like a event planner to, you know, handle all the logistics or how did you guys go about that? No, we do it internally. Um, mm. We're very fortunate. We, we have a couple of our marketing people that – um, have a bit of experience of this and are very good at it, um, and that they run it all internally. I think the benefit of that is 
it's a year-long project for us to run two events. We have, you know, literally a team working on it almost permanently. We run some other meetups, etc. But you know, this is kind of what we focus on. Um, and the ROI for us is great, so it justifies that commitment. But we do it all in-house. Got it. Okay, makes sense. Cool. Uh, events as a customer acquisition channel, everyone. <laughs> all right. So I want to switch gears a little bit again. Um, can you tell us about one big struggle you faced while growing the business? Just one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, it's a really interesting thing for me. And this is something that I, I've sort of spent a lot of personal time in, in trying to understand that companies that are scaling very quickly, and this term gets thrown around as sort of hyper growth where, you know, it's, it's over 100% per annum. Um, and we're, we're probably doing that more like a quarter at the moment. It it really is, it creates some fairly unique problems within the organization. So one of the ones we kept on seeing was processes that used to be the thing that made, you know, the the thing that was great and made things work break quite often. And you really have to understand that in growing an organization quickly, that inherently means you're going to break the processes that supported you very well six to 12 months ago. So hiring is a good one for us. We started out being really focused around hiring through our own networks, which seemed great at the time. But you very quickly reached the limit of that. And what I mean by that is we ended up, you know, managers were spending as much time focusing on hiring as they were focusing on their day job. And there was a very different, some people were good at it, some people were less good at it. And that became a real problem for us that we were, ending up with either the hiring process not being consistent or not ending up with the quality we needed or simply people getting bogged down in hiring. So, you know, the one lesson I've learned, something we've now kind of built into the culture, is really to accept the fact that whatever we put in place today will probably not be geared up to service in 12 months' time and we just need to monitor it for signs of breaking. And the fact it breaks is perfectly fine. It's just a, an indicator that the growth stage we've reached is one that needs a, a, a process that's different from the one we had previously. Got it. Okay. So just constant change is kind of the takeaway. Absolutely. And it, I mean, to also embrace it, you know, mm-hmm. constant change means things are growing and growth is great. So, you know, jump all over it. Got it. I like it. All right. What's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25-year-old self? <clears throat> Um, I think, you know, keep an eye on the big picture. And this is something that, um, you know, when, when we decided to do import, we basically sold a perfectly profitable company, um, that we'd started a couple of years beforehand to go and do a company we didn't know that would succeed. And the reason for that is we got really obsessed with the big picture that the web has huge potential in business and society to make a difference. But in order to do that, there were a number of problems that need to be fixed, one of which was the one we were focusing on, which was really making you know, machines able to read the web so we could, as, you know, as, as businesses and individuals, we can make better decisions. And I think you can get drawn into um, you know, getting drawn into the detail, getting drawn into, you know, winning tactical battles, etc. And you can even get complacent because the things you're doing are, are working. But unless you're really moving the needle, unless you're really trying to solve a big problem, it's 
probably not the best use of your time. And this is something that I'm hugely passionate about. Um, and I don't know if we're going to talk about books later, but there's a book I we are absolutely. That, uh, I won't. Uh, I'll talk about it then. Then, but <laughs> you know, I I, I think that um, entrepreneurs should focus on solving big problems, and that's the thing that makes being an entrepreneur great. That you can simply decide one day that you're fed up with the status quo, and you can go and try and solve a big problem and take all the risks that are associated with that. But even if you fail, learn along the way. So for me, that's the advice I give for my 25-year-old self is really just focus on the big problems. Got it. Okay, great. Um, so, David, how do you go about structuring your day? I'm, I have a little OCD around this. I'm, I try and keep a very focused day. That's not always possible, and particularly traveling quite a bit can make that difficult. But broadly speaking, I, I try to sort of separate my day into very much deep working time in the morning. I think it's the personal thing. I think some people work better in the mornings around this and some people in the afternoons. I think you just have to work out which type of person you are. But for me, if I've actually got to get something done which requires you know, a fair degree of concentration uh, and, and cognitive processing, etc., I have to do it in the morning. So I tend to start my day quite early I actually do just some email and basically admin stuff just to clear the clutter away from my thinking first thing. And then I basically from sort of you know, 8.30 to 12, I dedicate that time to deep working and I don't have any meetings during that time. So every morning in my diary is clear to allow me to work on specific projects or areas that I'm working on at the moment. I then typically try and break for a longer lunch. I try and Typically, I do a one and a half hour lunch where I try and exercise, um, you know, sort of do that three times a week. And if not, I literally just go out for a walk around. And, you know, my, the two offices I work out are London and San Francisco, both are great cities to walk around. So that's never too much of a hardship for me to sort of get out and have a walk around. And the afternoon, I, I simply um, back to back it with meetings so that I'm getting through that kind of thing because I find that my ability to sit in the meeting in the afternoon and make decisions I need is fine, but I certainly couldn't do any deep work in the afternoons. It's just, you know, the way I'm put together, I find it more difficult to sort of keep the concentration for long periods of time later in the day. Okay. Makes sense. The, would you say, I mean, you know, all of this, does all of this, is all this kind of flexible at times? I mean, let's say in the morning, you know, you don't take meetings, but let's say you have a meeting where, you know, multiple people are involved in this massive deal. It's like a hundred million dollar deal. Um, are, do you move things around? If I have to, but it would, it would be an, it would be an exception. I, I think you have to be very disciplined with your time. Now, obviously, you know, we're customer obsessed. So if the only, you know, if, if a customer wants to really go through an issue with me in the morning, I'd always make time. But I do try and, where possible, move those things to the afternoon. Um, and the reason behind that is, I, you know, I'm, we're in an amazing industry, being a technology industry. You know, the wealth creation opportunities are fantastic considering the number of people involved. But that requires a way of working that is more intense and deep. And that's not a state that one can just jump into. Um, you can't just say to people, right, now concentrate for two hours. It's a state that requires... You know, right. I mean, there's a lot of writing around flow, etc. Mm -hmm. It's a state that requires certain conditions to get into, 
can be maintained for a period of time and then with interruptions tends to be lost and you start the process again. Hence, interruptions can really, you know, it only takes a couple of interruptions in the morning and you've actually lost the whole period of time. So I too do try and protect it. And I also try and, there's a big focus at the moment within import in creating the right environment to help people to get into a flow state whenever they need to. So, you know, we, we do a lot of things around our environment, around quiet working areas that are genuinely quiet, collaborative working areas that are not, then allow people to sort of bounce ideas around. So we have this kind of agile working environment that we're, that we're in the process of creating at the moment to try and help people to get into that flow state as much as they can. Yeah, I, I think it's great that you bring that up. And a lot of, not, lot of you know, organizations don't understand the concept of flow where they'll you know, tend to overwork people, let them take meetings 24-7 and things like that. I, I think a great piece on all of this is also uh, Paul Graham's piece on uh, maker and manager schedule. I think that's a good one too. So we'll add that to the, to the show notes, but really appreciate what you're saying there. Um, okay, so what's, you know, let's talk about the books for a second. Let's talk about that one book you'd recommend to everyone. So, and I mean, I'm a, I've given out probably about 20 copies of this now. Um, it's a book called Bold by Peter Diamandis and Stephen Coulter. Um, and it's basically, I, I think the, the subtitle is How to Go Big, Create Wealth, and Impact the World. And it, it's essentially all about, I mean, it, there's a couple of books he wrote before that are probably worth reading, things like Abundance, which are really interesting. But the, the first part of the book focuses on exponential technologies and really talks about technologies that are having massive disruptive effects in society today. And it, it's a fascinating book because it really talks about the fact that the most interesting problems are also the ones that probably affect a billion people. And as such, they're probably the ones that both from a, a personal and intellectual perspective and also a financial perspective are worth solving. So um, I've read the book a couple of times now. Um, I think it's fascinating, some of the concepts in it. Um, there's various frameworks in it as well, which are kind of, you know, can be applicable in, in lots of different areas. So yeah, big fan of that book and big fan of uh, some of the stuff both Stephen Coulter and Peter Diamandis are, are doing in this space. It's, it's really um, very cool. And, uh, you know, it's a great book. I'd recommend it to anybody. Awesome. Great. We'll make sure to, to add that to the show notes for sure. It sounds like an interesting one. Um, okay. So, David, I mean, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? So um, you can find me online at Import.io. Um, that has links out to my Twitter, etc. Um, we also have uh, an interesting blog if you're interested in data under the Import.io site. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Cool. Well, everyone, this is David White. Make sure you check out Import.io. It's a great tool. Highly recommended. Thanks again, David. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Eric. Hey everyone, just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month, and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text quick tips to 33444. That's the word quick Q-U-I-C-K and tips, T-I-P-S as in sugar, to 33444, and you get instant access. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.